This is Namitha Sethmota for NEJM Catalyst. I'm speaking today with Dr. Jonathan Gleason. John is recognized as an expert in healthcare safety, quality, care transformation, and population health. He has served in executive leadership roles for several of the nation's leading health systems. He is now the Executive Vice President and Chief Clinical Officer of Prisma Health in South Carolina. John has been committed to improving access and health equity, specifically for patients with intellectual disabilities, and he also serves on boards with Special Olympics and an advisor to many groups that are working to improve the lives of the intellectually disabled. John and his co-authors recently wrote an article about health disparities for people with intellectual disabilities during the pandemic, which resulted in real transformational change, including civil rights lawsuits and major policy changes around the world. This article has actually been one of our most read uh, in, in the pages of, of Catalyst. And so today we are incredibly excited to have you here, John, to hear a little bit more about the story and the experience of, of you to date. Uh, in terms of catalyzing change for, for this community. And just as importantly, think about how we should move forward and other health systems and other health system executives should move forward in addressing health disparities uh, for people with intellectual disabilities. So thank you for joining us today. Namada, thank you. Let's start with some level setting. How does one characterize and define an intellectual and developmental disability and help us think about how healthcare executives and clinical leaders should think about this population in the context of the larger community of people with disabilities. Well, intellectual disability is characterized by significant limitations in both intellectual functioning and adaptive behavior that originates at a young age. And broadly, I'd say there are three things to know. First is that intellectual disability is common, maybe more common than you think. Estimates are that one to 3% of the US population has an intellectual disability, which means that almost everyone has personal experience with the profound impact of intellectual disabilities, not just on those that are affected, but also on their families. And also I think it's important uh, to point out that this population is under-identified. So, these estimates are, are likely low. The second thing to know is that there is significant cost to our healthcare system in caring for this vulnerable community. Published studies that estimate that the intellectually disabled population represents up to 15% of the Medicaid program expenses. So that's a very significant cost. And the third thing that I would say is that health outcomes are poor for individuals with intellectual disability. The easiest example of that is that life expectancy is 20 years shorter than the rest of the US population. And also I would note that the intersection of intellectual disability and social determinants of health like poverty is a place where we see very poor health outcomes. So, you know, for health care executives, I say that the needs of intellectually disabled individuals can be very profound. They differ from the needs of uh, other types of disabilities, such as sensory and motor disabilities. And I think the top line is that this is a large and vulnerable community with very high healthcare costs, experience poor health outcomes, and have very specific needs. Thank you for that context. 
give us some examples in that context of how people with this disability are denied access or receive inequitable care. I imagine the pandemic, which highlighted so many other stark examples, uh, will allow us to see some, some examples, unfortunately. Sure. So we've already discussed healthcare costs and poor health outcomes in terms of life expectancy in this population, but there are many other examples. Obesity is very common and intellectually disabled uh, populations. They're five times more likely to have diabetes, three times more likely to have arthritis, twice as likely to have cardiovascular disease. And these are conditions that have no obvious causal relationship uh, to cognitive disability or intellectual disability. So it really suggests poor health behaviors. In terms of access, it's very well documented that their access to healthcare services is lower than the general population. And so they have many unrecognized or unmet healthcare needs. And, uh, and that's very clearly you know, described in much of the data. In our study, which we'll talk about in a little bit, uh, inpatient mortality for people with intellectual disability and COVID-19 was higher uh, than non-intellectually disabled uh, patients, but their ICU admission rate was lower. So for IDD patients with COVID, they were more likely to die, but less likely to receive ICU care. And obviously this is a very complex topic and something that requires even deeper study, but you know, there are clear indications about uh, health disparities, both from an access perspective, from a health outcomes perspective, and even some indications of disparities in care in the inpatient environment. So what do patient-centered care models need to look like for this population? How do we address and close some of these disparities that you just defined and identified for us? I think um, patient-centered care models for this population have to take into account uh, the lives that uh, IDD patients live uh, which oftentimes aren't independent. So they may be living in congregate care settings or they may be cared for by a family member or a caregiver that really um, helps them in uh, navigating their life. And so uh, much of the care from my perspective in this population really needs to be made available virtually um, as it can be very difficult to uh, to go somewhere with an individual that has intellectual disabilities, there can be challenges uh, from a behavioral perspective to, uh, to um, go to an appointment, to sit in a waiting room, and then to wait in a waiting room for uh, a uh, physician or an advanced practice provider, and then to wait on the back. And these are just very difficult things for people that don't have typical control of their behaviors and they're intellectually disabled. So uh, to me, uh, a real um, possibility for, for this population is to extend virtual care to them and to really extend that care, not just to them, but also to their caregivers and the specialists that they uh, work with. One of the uh, other challenges uh, in terms of the care model is that we um, do have a specialty in medicine uh, and, uh, and developmental pediatrics, uh, which is wonderful. But what we do not have is we don't have um, adult developmental 
specialists. So uh, there is a real need uh, as um, intellectually disabled uh, patients grow older to have physicians that are uh, understanding and trained in uh, working with this patient population. We just, that's a fundamental gap that we have in the healthcare system is we don't have adult specialists that are, that are trained in providing care to these individuals that have specific needs. And then of course, there's a very significant need for wraparound services in terms of care coordination with this population. Are there examples as you travel the country and meet and work with different health systems where they're getting it right, where they have the wraparound services, where they have the care navigators, where they're providing virtual services, where they have you know, adult-based uh, developmental expertise? There are examples around the country, even in residential facilities where uh, there are tremendous resources that are brought to bear for individuals that live in those facilities, as well as um, a daycare uh, type uh, facilities that provide wraparound services and care coordination and even uh, physicians and advanced practice providers in those settings. And that, that can be very, very impactful. But I think it's important to recognize that there still is a very significant part of the intellectually disabled population that, that doesn't have access because there's significant sort of gaps in access to, to those types of programs um, around the country. So there are uh, examples of success around the country, but uh, there's still a tremendous gap. And the biggest evidence of that is what I've already shared with you in terms of the, uh, the uh, life expectancy, the prevalence of severe and chronic disease in the population and the lack of access to healthcare services. So, you know, I think there are, there are specific examples here and there, but uh, from a population health perspective, we, we, we aren't seeing what we need to see. I have to ask John, how did you get involved in this work and what about it sustains you? During the pandemic, I was deeply involved with many community-based organizations. And in several instances, I observed tragic events where it appeared that individuals with intellectual disabilities were particularly vulnerable to COVID outbreaks and potentially for severe COVID. That was what I observed. And it became clear to me that individuals with intellectual disabilities were less able to effectively utilize behaviorally-based risk mitigation strategies, right? Wear your mask, wash your hands, keep your distance. These are things that people with typical control of their behaviors can do, but individuals without typical control of their behaviors may not be able to do. So our team quickly, and I mean very quickly, performed an analysis of 64 million US patients to determine what the impact of intellectual disability was on the odds of having a COVID diagnosis or dying from COVID. And what we found was that having an intellectual disability was the strongest independent risk factor for having a COVID-19 diagnosis. Sadly, it was the second strongest risk factor for dying from COVID, second only to age when you adjusted for all the other risk factors the adjusted odds ratio was 5.9. And I actually remember where I was sitting and what I was doing when I received these results because they were so profound. Um, and so at the time when I received the results, we were in the early days of the vaccine deployment efforts when scarcity of the vaccines was an issue and we were 
determining and wrestling with the uh, with the process of allocating the vaccine to those who were at the highest risk. So we had a strong sense of urgency to make these data publicly available. And the article was published in NAJM Catalyst just a few days later. And uh, since that time, several other groups have performed similar analyses and have had similar findings. So that the, the results and the issue is very real. So the paper was published and within days, civil rights lawsuits had been filed by families of individuals with intellectual disability uh, against states for not prioritizing this population for vaccination. And a dozen or so states and many countries ultimately extended their prioritization of vaccines to include IDD, but most didn't. And uh, colleagues uh, and I partnered with many different organizations, including Special Olympics International, the Institute for Exceptional Care, and many others, you know, to, uh, to advocate uh, for the inclusion of intellectual disability and the list of conditions uh, that uh, put you at high risk for severe COVID-19. And ultimately that did occur, but only uh, in March of this, of this year. And so there was quite a bit of effort and time uh, that was put into uh, changing that uh, policy and that prioritization. Uh, we did a number of other things during that time, including uh, designing vaccine clinic models to make vaccines more accessible to people with IDD and, and so many other things. So it's been a very, very long journey. And during this process, um, I can tell you many individuals have reached out to me to share their personal stories about how that pandemic impacted uh, their family members uh, that had IDD. And I can share with you that the impact has been profound in this population. Uh, so this issue is near and dear to me because our family is impacted uh, by intellectual disability, something that we, uh, that we are personally impacted by. And so, you know, this has been an extraordinary experience and identifying this issue, publishing, and then carrying it on towards policy and ultimately practice, you know, just from a personal perspective. As we think about practice and frontline care delivery transformation, what is some advice that you would share with your fellow healthcare executives who are at their own institutions thinking about how to improve care for this population? So a couple things. Um, one is that all of us in healthcare leadership are uh, understanding the need for us to inspire and to engage our amazing healthcare workforce. That is a need that all of us have. And this issue can do that. Um, you know, uh, people really have, uh, really care about this issue. No, but I think you said it well, that this article was one of the most popular articles in NAJM uh, history. And that is because of how much people care about this issue. And so as a healthcare leader, I think focusing on this population not only is the right thing to do, and there's real impact to be had there, it also can bring your organization together. And I've seen that in my organizations as I've been focusing on this. So that's that's one thing. I think it's I think it's not only the right thing to do. I think it's also very inspiring and engaging for the healthcare workforce. The second thing I would say is that um, 
all of us are working towards patient and family-centered care. We're including the community and patients in the design of care. And so a practical thing to do is to include um, either intellectually disabled individuals or their family members or both in your uh, patient and family-centered uh, uh, care uh, advisory groups. So I think that's, that's a real need and something that, that, that's, that everyone can do. Um, another thing I would say is that uh, we are all in process right now of redesigning healthcare. That's what we're doing. And just from a philosophical perspective, if we make it a goal to design healthcare that is wonderful, safe, and accessible for people with typical abilities, uh, from my perspective, that isn't good enough because we're not designing it for the most vulnerable among us. So strategically, I think the right goal is for us to be designing care that is wonderful, safe, and accessible for people that don't have typical abilities. And that will really take us to the next level in terms of the care delivery writ large. John, thank you so much for speaking with us today. And thank you for all the great work that you are doing and will continue to do. Thank you.